Right. Good morning. It's uh, it's good to be back together again. Amen. One of the big questions with all the Corona stuff this uh, last year has been: Is the church essential? I'll tell you the answer. Yes, the church is essential, and it's essential that we get together. And I, I missed uh, I missed seeing most of you. There were what three of us here last week, or or four. I I, I preached to John Rasick. He sat right there. And uh, so anyway, uh, it's good to, good to see y'all back. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 6. We're going to look at Acts 6, 1 through 7, thinking about the ministering seven. Now I have to tell you, uh, we were talking before the service about jokes that people don't get and little, little nuances. And when Sheila's always asking me for a title on, by Friday, you know, because she wants to put it in the bulletin. Now, I'll be honest, I usually don't have one, so I just come up with something, so... I was like, well, I was thinking about the passage, and in my mind, Yule Brenner and the Magnificent Seven came to mind. So I started to say the Magnificent Seven, but I said, nah, just put the Ministering Seven. But I'll tell you, that's really a bad title uh, in, a, in some ways, because honestly, the church is made up of people and members, every one of which is to be a minister, quite honestly, a, a servant. But the New Testament does call for two primary offices in the New Testament church, and they are pastor, elders, pastors, elders, shepherds, same thing, and then deacons. Now that's not to say that there are other positions that the church as needed can, can create and, and do, but I believe that we are prescribed that we do have these two primary offices that the local church needs, pastors and deacons. And uh, I'll tell you, since I came, several of our deacons have gone to inactive status due to family or personal health reasons uh, to the, the point that now uh, we have fewer than half of the number of active deacons that we had when I came. I hope you understand that I did not, <laughs> I, I don't think I drove them away. I may have. I, don't, I didn't mean to. If I did, I think there were legitimately some, some health concerns and various things. And, uh, you know, here in our church, our, the idea is uh, that... Uh, we'll have about one deacon per ten families. That's, that's in our church constitution. And it's just a way to, to try to get our, our hands around and, and wrap our heads around how many deacons do we need. But um, um, So we're entering into a process of trying to uh, identify and for the congregation to approve and ordain uh, some new deacons in our church. And as we've met with the deacons, uh, as I have, uh, we talked about the processes and all of that, and one of the things they said is you need to, you need to preach about deacons. And so uh, today we'll spend uh, this message, and then next week also looking at deacons in the life of the church and, and um, specifically why we need deacons, what are they to do, what are their qualifications and responsibilities and all those things. Now, I realize I'm thinking, I've been thinking, man, I don't know, preaching about this might be about as exciting as watching snow melt I, I don't know but hey it's been pretty exciting to watch the snow melt amen I'm pretty functional type thing and then I'm thinking and now I'm going to drag it out over two Sundays but I hope you'll bear with me and I hope you'll see the relevance of this uh, because we're talking about the church we're talking about the church and today I want us to look at Acts 6 1 through 7 and think very broadly in really broad general strokes about uh, deacons in the life of the church and I'll tell you this we are tempted, I think, to think that we know more than the Bible about how to do church. 
because we've had 2,000 years of stuff and we've got all these, you know, we've got technologies and we've got uh, funds and we've got structures and all of this. We've got uh, buildings and resources that they didn't have in the New Testament. But what I would say is, uh, number one, I'm a Bible guy, so I want to go back and say, what does the Bible say about this? But I'm convinced that really we need, and I'm talking about the church in America especially, we drastically need to go back to the Bible and become reacquainted and reantiquated <laughs> with, with the biblical thinking about the model of Christianity and the church. And so, um, you know, that's what I want to do. I want to go back to the Bible and say, what do we see about deacons and the life of the church and how they function? Acts chapter 6, let's read verses 1 through 7. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, so disciples, that was what they were calling the followers of Jesus in the church. They were not yet called Christians. That doesn't happen till later. All right, so they're increasing in number. And a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them, and the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. The first thing I want to point out in this passage, is a growing need in a growing church. A growing need in a growing church. Of course, Jesus has ascended, and he has designed the church, and he has apostles, and there were disciples that literally followed Jesus in his days on earth. And he told them to wait, and the Holy Spirit would be poured out. And that's what happened at a time called Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was poured out, and over 3,000 people came into the church. Now, that's a, that's, a revive, I mean, that's a massive influx. But then it says here that they continued to grow. Look at verse 1. They were increasing in number. That is, the disciples, the number of Christians. People were coming to faith in Christ after Jesus had ascended through the witness and the testimony and the sharing of the gospel and all of the beautiful things that were going on in the church. There was an influx of people into the church and their ministries were multiplied and things were going on and people were being helped and loved and cared for and that's what should happen as a result of the gospel. You know what? It's easy to overlook this, that, that the growth of the church is actually a pretty astounding thing. Considering the fact that the founder of the church had been publicly crucified and humiliated not many days before. It's astounding to think about this massive influx and growth in the church in light of the fact that the, the uh, Pharisees and Sadducees, many of the Jewish leaders, now this is in Jerusalem, they hated the Christians and they hated that movement and they were persecuting, they were trying to put them in jail, they were doing all kinds of things and yet this church continues to grow. Hey, 
We're facing a time in our country when there is going to be a radical difference in the way the church is and who is in the church and the way we believe and the way the world believes. There is legislation being passed ostensibly. I would, I would pray against that with some of the uh, LGBTQ stuff and all of that, that that threatens religious liberty. But let me say this to you. No matter what law they pass, we are free to worship. They can say we can't, but we must. We must remain true to Jesus no matter what the government or oppressors or whoever says. I will just say that to you, that we're free. We're free. And the church was free, and they continued to grow in spite of all of the things that were stacked against them. A guy named Alan Kreider wrote about this in a, in a book. He was looking at uh, researching the early church, and he says what he does is he researches how the church continued to grow in spite of the improbability that it should. It continued to grow, and there were some interesting things I want to point out to you about what Kreider said about the growth of the early church in these days that we're talking about. He said there were several compelling things that marked the Christians of that day. Number one, Christians were different in their business dealings. They were different. They were honest. They were true to their word. He wrote that when they gave a bid or a quote to do a job, that's what they charged. They were honest. They didn't cheat. When people cheated the Christian business, men and women, they didn't retaliate generally. They didn't go out and sue people. There was a forbearance and a forgiveness and, and a patience, he says. And so Christian business dealings. He says there was a sexual purity among the church amidst a debauched culture that was shocking. A guy named Felix, an ancient writer, wrote this about the Christians. He said their beautiful life encourages strangers to join their ranks. And he was talking about the purity of life. So they were different in their business dealings. There was sexual purity in the church, things that we've been talking about in the past few weeks. There was an astounding faith and a spiritual power. In other words, when people were sick, they went and prayed for them, believing that there would be healing. They, the Christians actually believe, believed that God was real, and He would work, and He would answer their prayers. There was a faith there that drew people in. Not only that, Kreider says, it wasn't just a movement of men. Something that shocked a lot of the people was, there were men, there were women, and there were children, all coming together in church in a time where you had boys clubs and you had girls clubs, but they didn't tend to meet together. Here was this church. And in a large measure, there was, they said, inequality. I mean, children were the lowest of the low, and the church was welcoming in little children. Little children, Jesus says, let them come unto me. And actually, a lot of people laughed at the early church because of this, because they valued women and they valued children. And then this, there was the care for the poor. Some of Kreider's research, he says, you know, a modest number is that about 65% of people in that day were in what's called subsistence poverty. Do you know what that means? Subsistence poverty is when you basically don't know where your next meal is coming from. My, my, my folks call that living hand to mouth. This was what was going on. Two-thirds of the people did not know where their next meal would come from. 
And Henry Chadwick says about this, the practical application of charity was probably the most potent single cause of the Christian success. In other words, everybody else was trying to get theirs, and here was the Christian church. And people that had extra, all of them were giving so that nobody went without. Hey, listen, it wasn't socialism. They weren't forced to do this. You see in the church, let me just say this, because a lot of people look and say, is socialism the right way? And look at how the church did that. No one was compelled. They were compelled by love. But it was voluntary. People still owned houses. They still owned land. But they gave as they felt compelled to. And they had extra. And they cared for one another. There's a word for this. It's called fellowship. It's called koinonia. And it was this radical commitment to one another. You are my brother and sister in Christ. And I'm going to care for you. And I don't want you to go without. And so they cared not only for the poor in their midst, but they also cared for the poor who were strangers. Now listen, this is going somewhere to our passage. Part of that was that there was care for the widows. In fact, what we see is that there were there was daily food distribution going on in the church to take care of the widows. Now, I want you to consider this. When 65% of the people were already living hand-to-mouth, subsistence poverty, you had a group of people, widows, who had basically no means to make ends meet. And the church stepped up and they made sure that they had food. And it's that going on in the church that now causes the problem, the growing pains. What is the growing pain? Well, there were uh, Hellenistic Jews. These are Jewish people. Now, and I think these are Christians. That's what I think. But, but they were Jewish Christians. There were Hellenistic ones. They spoke Greek. Okay? They, they didn't speak the, the Hebrew or Aramaic. And then you had the Hebraic Jews. And it appears that the uh, Hebrew Jews were getting, the widows were getting the distribution of food but the Greek-speaking ones weren't. Now, it could be that there was a language barrier. I don't know. could have been a little bit of, of friction between the two groups. As, to, as different people come together, there is often friction. But there is a complaint that had arisen. This group of widows is not being cared for, and this one is. But the, let, let me stop here and take a little side path with you. It said there arose a complaint. I know it's hard for you to believe that every once in a while, the church experiences complaints. I got an email, a little email devotional that came to me this week, and it was a great word. It was just warning against an attitude of grumbling and complaining. And I thought about how easy it is to slip into the mindset of constantly nitpicking, criticizing, and complaining what goes on in the church. And I think sometimes that we begin to think that that is somehow the exercise of the spiritual gift of discernment. I would just say, watch out for complaining and criticizing and nitpicking. Somehow in our minds, I think that we think complaining is like being cold in our house and we go over to the thermostat and we decide we're going to change the temperature. And we think complaining, if we're cold, is going to raise the temperature. But in fact, complaining oftentimes, folks, is like hitting the arrow down. When what we want is a warmer environment. 
There are spiritual dangers in complaining. And let me say this. Number one is the spiritual danger for your own soul. Because constantly complaining shrivels thankfulness and gratitude and love. It does exactly the opposite of what we want to happen. Yet sometimes we get fooled into thinking that complaining is going to accomplish something good. Generally, I think it's true that it doesn't. Not only does it shrivel our souls and the gratitude and the love and the good feelings and the fellowship, but it also devours and destroys the people that we're complaining about. Yet, there are times when real needs exist and something needs to be said and something needs to be done. And that complaint has gone forward that actually there is this group of people not being cared for in the church. That's a legitimate complaint. Not complaining is a general, generally a good rule, but there are times when we need to have the boldness. Somebody, somewhere, begin to speak up and say, hey, the church is not doing what she should do. And so what happens? The apostles hear about it, about the complaining, and they gather the congregation up to deal with the problem. Hey, some people don't believe that congregationalism is a biblical form of church government. It's right here. Right here. There is a problem in the congregation, and so the apostles say, you know what we need to do? We need to gather the congregation to deal with this problem in our midst. So now I want you to see there were growing pains in a growing church. Here's a solution, a desirable division of duties in the church's ministries. Here's what the apostles said. They got the congregation together, and they said, it's not good. So the complaints have come to them, because basically they're the only office in the church at that point, the apostles. They said, it's not good that we go and oversee this ministry because there are problems. It's not desirable, they say, for us to neglect the Word of God. They had a very clear sense of their primary callings and responsibilities and duties. They were called by Jesus to be founders of the church, to preach the Word, to tell the testimony of the Gospel, to pray. And they said, it's not desirable that we would neglect the Word of God because it takes time to prep and to go and to preach and to teach. There are some people, if you've you've never preached, you ought to try it sometime. There are people that believe that preaching should always be like Acts chapter 2, right? We're just kind of hanging out together and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit falls and somebody gives a powerful message. I mean, Peter stood up and 3,000 were converted, bang, on the spot, infused by the power of the Holy Spirit. That neglects the fact that Peter and all of the disciples had been praying for weeks and preparing for weeks for what was to come. All right, so, so, so the apostles say, man, I mean, it takes time and it takes prayer and we have to give ourselves to the Word and to prayer. We have to give ourselves time to the prayer. Prayer takes time. It takes focus. It takes being alone. You can pray in a group also. It takes getting away. Jesus taught that prayer is so important. And he modeled, it's so important, that many, many times we see him going away from the crowds to spend time with the Lord, to receive help from the Lord, direction from the Lord, a word from the Lord, guidance from the Lord. And not only that, 
He says, you know, there are certain spiritual things that will not happen without fasting and prayer. It's essential to the ministry of the church. And so the apostles were convinced, you know, we've got this thing that we're to do. Here's our solution. Choose seven men out from among yourself that we can put in charge of this ministry and take care of this problem, to administrate this ministry to the widows well. Hey, listen, it was a very important ministry. What they didn't say is, who cares about that? We're in charge of the spiritual stuff. No, they recognize that is part of the stuff. It's essential. And so choose out from among yourselves seven men that we can put in charge of this task. Here's the thing. A growing church with growing ministries with an existing ministries, must have a plan for a division of duties, shared leadership. The pastor is not the leader of the church. A pastor is a leader of the church. There are other leaders that are needed in the church. We see that here. And so here are deacons. Choose out from among yourself seven men who can serve. It's interesting, you don't actually see the word deacon here. Does anybody's translation have deacon? Do you have your Bibles open? It doesn't actually say in English translation deacons. But in verse 2, it's the word diakoneo, that's deacon, it's a verb, it's to take care of, it's to minister, it's to serve, it's there. People look at this passage, and there's a couple of ways you could understand it. One is, and this is the way I understand it, this is where the ministry of the deacons emerged from, right here. This is where, the, where it happened. It's the prototype. Now, it's not everything. There are later things that we find as the church develops, but it is right here. Some actually think that the seven that are appointed here are actually pastors. I think that's a stretch. Others say it's neither. It's not pastors. It's not deacons. What it is is the church just going, hey, there's a need. Pick seven dudes. Have them go take care of it, and we don't have to be bound to it. But I think that the Bible clearly shows, and we're going to look at this next week, two roles, Two offices, pastors and deacons. What are these deacons to do? What is the diakoneo? What is the verb? What is, I mean, the service that they're to do. It says, to serve the tables. Now, in our minds, we kind of do this. Oh, yeah, that's like when I go out to eat after, after church. Somebody's going to bring me my food. We tend to think that, and I think that's a, a, a misunderstanding here. I don't think these guys, these seven men that were going to be chosen, were the ones actually probably delivering the food. It's not to say that's below them. I think they were administrators. I think they were to take care and make sure that everything was happening. They were to be involved, but they were administrators of it. Tables, waiting tables, serving tables. The word table, actually, you know, when Jesus went into the temple, he overturned some tables. You know what those tables were? They weren't food tables. What were they? They were money tables. It was the taking care of the finances of things. I think that's probably somewhat in view here. So he says, take some guys, take seven men, put them in charge of this ministry. It's going to involve handling the funds, administrating and overseeing and making sure that things are taken care of and this, bringing unity and harmony back to the church where there is division and there's complaining and there's a problem. In ancient times, heads of households were the one that, ones that decided who got the food and how it was distributed. Did you know that? So it wasn't a lowly position to take care of the distribution of food. In fact, it was very important, and it was seen as a job for the heads of households. I view deacons, and I think that this is legitimate, I view deacons as servant leaders in the church. 
I think that's the view here. And it's an important role. It's not the only role. It's a role to the functioning of the church. So now let's look at the selection of those ministering seven. Here's, here's the first thing that stands out. It's seven, but it's seven what? It's seven men. It's seven men. Now, if I was choosing people to take care of widows who are mad, I would send the ladies to do it. Right? Sounds like a perfect women's ministry to me. I'm being honest. Now, let's just think about that. It's, it's about caring for widows. I would go, that's women's ministry. So choose out from among yourself seven women able to do that and keep me out of hot water, right? But he doesn't say that. He says, choose from among yourself seven men. Why would he choose men instead of women? This is conjecture. It's trying to understand what's going on there. But I think this, if we see the deacons as closely working with the apostles, right? Think about leadership team. They have a division of duties. It's most likely that the deacons were working just as closely, if not closer, with the apostles than they were with the actual widows. And decorum of the day would say, uh, these married apostles probably don't need to be having closed room um, meetings with a group of ladies. That's just one of the things I think that might be in view here. But here's another thing. I think, now listen to this, because there becomes the question of can women be deacons, and we're going to address that here at the end and then next week. I think that generally the biblical pattern is that men are given a responsibility and a call to lead in their homes. And I think that the New Testament views the church more like a household than a business. I think that men are given a responsibility I didn't say a privilege, I said a responsibility and a call to be servant, sacrificial leaders like Jesus, to give themselves to the ministry of the church. And so, I think that's why men were chosen. Some of the reasons, but the fact is, and we're going to see this next week, that's what the Bible says. And so, is there evidence that women are deacons or could be deacons? Actually, yes. There is a passage, and we can look at that next week. There are some texts and some interpretations of a word, deaconess. There were women, evidence in the, in the, in the Bible, that women were deaconesses. And so we ask the question, can women be deacons, or what is this deaconess? A conservative interpretation of that is, and we're going to see it in 1 Timothy 5, it's deacons' wives. Deacons' wives, that's how I think it should be interpreted. Many have interpreted it that way. But listen, here's what I also think. I think that the deacons of the church, along with their wives, were called into this ministry. Because it actually is going to give some uh, qualifications for the deacons' wives in 1 Timothy 5. So we're going to deal with that a little more fully next week. But listen to this. I'm going to wrap this up. I know the, the snow is melting slowly. Three major qualifications of deacons, of servants of these tables right here. Now listen why this is important, and I'm only going to give you three. It's important because when we go to 1 Timothy 5, we're going to get embroiled in a couple of um, qualifications that are going to make us think in terms of, up oh, disqualified, up oh, disqualified for one thing. Listen, here were the qualifications. They are three. 
Number one, they should be of good reputation. As you think about people, and listen, a church is impacted massively by the people who are chosen to lead, including the deacons. So he says, first of all, pick men of good reputation. That means these are people who are known. By and large, when you ask someone about them, if you were to, they would say, reputable guy. They have integrity. They deal with people in such a way that the other person comes away feeling like they have been treated fairly and been treated right. In general, we could just say it's people that live their lives like a Christian should. They're of good reputation. Does that, that's not going to mean that you know every person you go to is going to say, yep, yep, A1, number one, none of us are perfect. All right? But they're generally of good reputation. So number one. Number two, they are full of the Spirit. What does that mean? Does that mean they speak in tongues? Does that mean they're just born again? Well, to be full of the Spirit would assume that you're born again, that you have the Spirit of God. That's the people that have the Spirit of God, people that are saved, but not everybody walks according to the Spirit. We have to learn to crucify the flesh in order to live by the Spirit. But in the book of Acts, generally, when it says someone is full of the Spirit, you know what it means, what they're, what they're getting at? These are people who have a courageous boldness to tell about Jesus. That's the people that are full of the Spirit, regardless of how they do it or where they do it. And in fact, we're going to see that Stephen, well, we're not going to see it. We're not going to look at that. We're going to go back to 1 Corinthians probably. But Stephen, the very first one chosen, was a bold witness for Jesus. In fact, in witnessing to some people, it cost him his life. In the book of Acts, people who are full of the Spirit are people that talk about Jesus boldly and courageously. A deacon has got to be a person who stands for Jesus openly and courageously. So they're of good repute, they're full of the Spirit, and hey, listen, they're full of wisdom. To be full of wisdom means someone that makes good decisions. They walk out in wisdom. They know the right paths. They're able to discern a good path from a bad path, and their life would bear out that in general they make good decisions. So that's what it says. Good reputation, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. And so here's what I want to ask of you. As we enter into this process, and we'll look more fully at these qualifications next week, but this is a good starting point to kind of get our field of vision, broad strokes, who should be deacons in our church. I think this is a great starting point. So I want you to be thinking about who are some men of good reputation that are full of the Spirit, and their life gives evidence that they're full of wisdom. Who are they? Because we're going to do the same thing they did in Acts 6. We're going to ask the congregation, ultimately, choose out from among yourself some deacons to serve and to be leaders, servant leaders for the church. I, want to, I do have one last point. Let me say this. Because some of y'all are really bored with the snow melting here just want to say this is important. Something that's really interesting, look down at verse 7 if you still got your Bible open. The book ends of this passage we read today. It says in, in verse 1, the disciples were increasing. 
up to the point that this complaint arose and there was a problem. But after they solved the problem, look at verse 7, the number of disciples continued to increase greatly. It was increasing in verse 1. In verse 7, all of a sudden, as the church has dealt with a problem, the church has with wisdom and godliness and care and graciousness dealt with a very real issue in their midst. And now the church goes from increasing to increasing greatly. If you don't think deacon leadership is important, look right there. It's not just the preachers. It's the people that serve the congregation in every way, and especially these deacons. It's, it is very important So they're increasing greatly, so much so that now it says even some of the priests, many of the priests are coming into the church and believing. I think the priests, these Jewish priests, were scratching their head and go, man, our group of guys over here, all they do is fight, can never make progress. They disagree and we have schisms and never the twain shall meet. And over here, you've got these Christians. They face this mountainous problem, this division between two groups. And what do they do? They handle it with godliness and care and with wisdom. I read once that good leadership attracts good leaders. In other words, as people who value leadership and peace and the ability to function as a group, they look at a church and they go, is there good leadership in that church? And again, I would say that means far more than the pastor. It means are there godly men and women, but in the deacon role are there godly men who are stepping up and taking care of business there is a beauty in that i'll tell you hey let me just be really um frank blunt i don't know this is just kind of a, a little side note usually deacons stay in the church a whole lot longer than pastors do i'm just saying deacons in the church provide a stability of leadership that is needed. So, this is not, as we enter into ordaining deacons, this is not just, well, who do I think is a pretty good feller that's going to advocate for my interest in the church. Now, that could be that they're of good reputation. But I do want you to think carefully and pray about who are men of good reputation, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, that First Baptist Church of Valley Springs needs in servant leadership? Be thinking about that. We're going to come back together. Be praying about that. We'll come back together next week. We'll try to melt a little more snow. We're going to deal with the very specific qualifications. I would ask you to read ahead to First Timothy chapter 5. That's where the qualifications are. And... Uh, Beat your head up against some of those things. Be praying about this. Be thinking about this. This is important for the life and the future of our church. Amen? So let me pray for us, and we're going to be dismissed. Father, I do thank you today for your church. That is your idea, your design, your plan, your qualifications. And as we look to your word together, as believers in Christ. I pray that we would come at your word with a humility to learn and a careful prayer and consideration about those men who you have 
prepared and brought to us for this role, the role of deacons. And so I pray that you'd help us as we prepare to ask the congregation to select out from among ourselves some men full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom and of good reputation. Pray that you'd guide us. Give us wisdom. Help us to clarify what we're asking for, what we're looking for, what is needed in our day for these men who will serve the church as deacons. Lord, we're thankful to be back in this place together today. I pray that you would lead us. I pray that you would grow your church right here in Valley Springs according to your plan. Help us to experience that same kind of commitment to the fellowship and to one another and to you that the early church experienced. I pray that our witness as a church in the world would be beautiful and compelling and would draw people in to see the beauty of Christ, to know the multifaceted beauty of walking with you. Help our church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, gosh, I guess that means you're dismissed. We uh, we missed a business meeting last week. We decided to.